Well, this morning we are continuing our study of the theology of the Christian faith, and uh, we are going to talk about Jesus. So uh, this is what has classically been called Christology, that is the study of Christ himself. And uh, as you look at Christology, as you look at the person of Jesus, of course, you find that uh, people have a lot of opinions about the Son of God and about who Jesus is. Uh, So as I was looking at the news even just this week, I noticed there's a brand new movie out about Jesus. Uh, It is called Last Days in the Desert, stars Ewan McGregor, the Scottish actor. And uh, what's interesting is as you read about the movie, Ewan McGregor is not a religious man at all. He grew up in a vaguely Catholic family, but hasn't really practiced any sort of religion throughout most of his life. So as you read the interviews about how he approached this role of Jesus, it's fascinating because uh, in one of the interviews I read, Ewan McGregor says, you know, in order to get an idea of how I was going to portray Jesus, I read a whole lot of books about Jesus. And he says, I read all the academic and intellectual books talking about the Jesus of history. Now, I think that's an exaggeration. I don't think he read all of them, right? Because there are thousands But he said, I picked up a bunch of books and I read all of these books about who Jesus is. And he said, ultimately, that didn't help me. Uh, Now, he never mentions picking up the Bible, which might have been helpful to him, right? But he picked up all of these texts. And at the end of all of it, he says, that didn't help me. And uh, in one of these interviews, he says this, once I stopped trying to find him in other people's writings or other people's imaginings of him and started looking for him in my own who do I think he is, who do I think he was, then that's when I found him. Uh, So that's just a fancy way of saying he made up his own Jesus, right? He just decided that this is who I think Jesus is. And for him, Jesus was a guy who had a hard time connecting with his dad. And he thought, uh, I can uh, understand that, right? Everybody understands what it's like not to connect with your dad. So he emphasized the human aspect of Jesus and decided to portray Jesus as a man wrestling to come to terms with who he is. I thought that was fascinating because as you look at portrayals of Jesus and books about Jesus, what you'll find is that there are as many interpretations of Jesus as there are movies about him or books about him. There are thousands of different ways that people understand Jesus. And it's, it's interesting to me that perhaps more than anybody else in history, people feel the freedom to construct their own picture of Jesus, right? We don't do that, for example, with Abraham Lincoln or somebody like that. We don't just say, you know what? I've decided that Lincoln was a lacrosse player in 1952 from Canada, right? We don't make that up and project that back onto these other people of history, right? But people do that with Jesus all the time. So as you read literature about him, some people will say he was kind of a countercultural revolutionary, sort of a political revolutionary, right? Other people will say he was a great religious teacher, but not divine. To other people, he's just a nice guy who carries lambs around on his shoulder and tells you that whatever you do, it's all right, right? Uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, the former leader of the Soviet Union, he says Jesus was the first socialist, right? That's how he understands Jesus. Marilyn Manson, the shock rocker, he says, I have gone to great lengths to express it in my work that Christ was the first celebrity. 
Uh, right? So to him, Jesus is a guy that's out for fame and out to get followers, right? And uh, he says, that's what I've tried to do in my body of work is express that about Jesus. I thought that was interesting because he talks about his work as if it's this great academic literature, right? It's, uh, it's shock rock. And he says, that's who Jesus is. Uh, one of the more interesting ones came from a man named Mark Eaton, who used to play for the Utah Jazz. He says, I think Jesus would have been a great basketball player. He would have been one of the most tenacious guys out there. Nothing dirty, but he'd play to win. Right? And I read that and I go, that's really weird, right? You just made that up. There's nothing in the Bible that talks about how Jesus would be as an athlete. Not only that, but I'm confident that if Jesus wanted to, he would win, right? Because uh, he is God in the flesh. And so it's interesting as you read all of these things, you realize people don't know what to do with Jesus, Right? We project ourselves onto Jesus because in many ways, Jesus confuses us. In fact, as you look through the New Testament and you read the gospel narratives, we are certainly not alone in that. Jesus' disciples were always confused about who he is. Right? One of my favorite narratives uh, in the book of Matthew is when Peter has this bold moment and Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter goes, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, well done, Peter. It wasn't flesh and blood that told you this, but it was my father. It was revealed to you by my father in heaven. You can just feel Peter kind of puffing up with, all right, man, I got it right. And then in the very next section, Jesus says, and I'm going to die and be rejected And after three days, rise again. And Peter, kind of feeling his oats, pulls Jesus aside and goes, ah, let's not talk about the dying stuff so much. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, right? And all of a sudden, Peter has gone from this guy who has supernatural revelation to the devil himself. And as you look throughout the New Testament, that tends to be what Jesus does. He unsettles people with who he is and what he says about himself. And here's why. Right, because Jesus is utterly unique. There's nobody else like him because he is fully God and fully man. So when we look at Jesus, what we are seeing is a perfect reflection of the character and the nature and the essence of God all packed into a human being. Right? And so we have a hard time understanding what all of that means. And so I think our temptation is to try to emphasize something that we think ought to be true about Jesus, or maybe we overemphasize one aspect of Jesus because there really is nobody in history like him. He's not like us. And as you read the scripture, what you see is that the Bible calls us to submit our understanding of Jesus to what God tells us about him rather than to try to force Jesus into our preconceptions of who we think he is, right? So Jesus is absolutely unique. Here's the way I'd frame it. There's nobody else like Jesus because only he is fully God and fully human, right? There's nobody else like Jesus because only he is fully God and fully human. Here's the way that our doctrinal statement at Grace puts it. We believe that the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, became man without ceasing to be God right? He is fully God and fully human. Now you may hear that and you've heard that all your life. And so 
uh, you kind of take it for granted. You think, boy, that is, that is obvious. That is basic Jesus 101, right? But as you look at the history of the church, here's what's fascinating is it took the Christian church nearly 400 years to really come to terms with what this meant. And throughout those 400 years, uh, the first 400 years after Jesus ascended into heaven, they debated the deity of Christ. They debated the humanity of Christ. They wrote creeds and documents to clarify what it meant because they recognized that there is nothing more significant to our faith than who he is. And so some people came along and they denied aspects of Jesus' deity. And so they would have to pull together as a church and write a document that clarified Jesus' deity. There were others that denied Jesus' humanity, and they simply said he appeared to be a person, but he wasn't really a person. That was a heresy called docetism. And so they pulled together and they wrote documents that clarified his humanity. And so you have these creeds like the Nicene Creed and the definition of Chalcedon going all the way into the fifth century that clarify this is who Jesus is. And at its heart, where they settled is Jesus is fully God and fully human. Or as Colossians chapter 2 says it, in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. All the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Now we're going to talk about what that means this morning, but here is what I would encourage you to do. As we look at some of these passages, particularly about the deity of Christ, I would urge you, commit some of them to memory, right? You could commit this one to memory uh, right now. In him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So if somebody asks you, who is Jesus? What does the Bible say that Jesus is? It's this right here, fully God, fully human, right? Why does this matter, right? As we've talked about theology. And as we began that study last week, you remember we said, if our theology is wrong, it can actually empty the gospel of its critical content. This is one of those areas. If we get this wrong, the gospel is void. And here's why. Because in order for Christ's death on our behalf to be sufficient to pay the sin of all humanity— It has to be an infinite sacrifice of a perfect exchange. If Jesus is not God, his sacrifice cannot pay for our sins. If Jesus is not a man, his death is merely an illusion and his resurrection is not real. And so our hope is emptied if Jesus is not who he said he was. And so as we walk through the deity and humanity of Christ this morning, We have to keep that at the center of our gospel message. And I think as we come to realize and wrestle with this morning who Jesus is, the other thing that I hope will happen is we will be moved to worship. Once you see that the God of all creation, the one who spoke into existence everything there is, humbled himself and became a person for us. And as Philippians 2 says, he humbled himself to the point of death even death on a cross. As we come to terms with that, I think we will respond, as Paul says, all creation will eventually respond, which is every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Understanding who he is drives us to worship and drives us to proclaim the beauty of the gospel. 
Right? So we want to unpack for a little bit this morning. What does it mean when we say in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form? All right, we're going to start first with the concept of Jesus as fully God. All right, the scripture could not be clearer on this point. Let me offer a couple of passages. First of all, John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There may not be any clearer passage in the New Testament than this one to, to totally tell us Jesus is God in the flesh. The Word was God. All right, and what that means is that if there's an attribute of God, Jesus has it. All of God's power, all of God's knowledge, all of God's grace, all of God's love, all of those reside in Jesus because Jesus is fully God. He is the second member of the Trinity, right? So we believe in a God who is three in one. We'll talk about that more throughout the summer. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus is not the Father. Jesus is not the Spirit. There are three persons, but one God. The early church used this Greek word homoousion, which means he is of the same essence, or nature of God, right? Hebrews chapter one puts it this way. He is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you wanna know what God is like, John will tell us, no one's seen God at any time, but the only begotten one who was in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. If you want to understand what God is like, you can look at Jesus because Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is not God light. Jesus is not like the generic version of the brand name God. You know, I was thinking this week how uh, we sort of, our version of Greek and Roman gods in our culture is probably uh, comic book heroes, right? Uh, superheroes like Superman and Batman and uh, Green Lantern. And as I was thinking about it, there really is a hierarchy amongst these superheroes, isn't there? Some of them are kind of all-powerful, like Superman. He can do everything. He can fly. He, he's almost invincible. Uh, he can see through wall. Like, he can do everything. And then you've got your lesser heroes, right? Like Green Lantern, Aquaman, the Flash, right? They've got a couple of powers, but they're not as big as Superman. Right? I think often when we think of Jesus, we're tempted to think of him as kind of, he's like the Aquaman in the whole thing, right? He's okay. There's a little bit of God in there, but really God is Superman, right? The scripture says, no, Jesus is of the very essence of God. He is not God Jr. He is not God Light. All the attributes of God reside in him. Right? And, and throughout his earthly life, you actually see uh, elements or periods of time where Jesus displays the glory of God, most notably in Matthew 17 at the transfiguration when Jesus leads his disciples, a few of his disciples up onto a mountain and says there he's transfigured before them and he shines with the glory of God. And you know what Peter and the disciples do? They hit the dirt because they realize who he is. He is fully God. All right, and the first aspect of Jesus that most cults and sub-Christian religions deny is the deity of Christ. Uh, I happened to be in Utah most of this past week with a friend studying and 
writing. And as we were on the plane on the way back, there was a woman in the back of the plane trying to convince another man to join the Mormon faith, right? Because more Mormons live in Utah than anywhere else in the country. And as you look in detail at the Mormon faith or the faith of the Jehovah's Witnesses or almost any other faith that has uh, emerged out of Christianity, the first doctrine that they will deny is the full deity of Christ. And yet the scripture makes it clear, if we deny the deity of Christ, then the whole thing falls apart. The center cannot hold together because apart from Jesus as fully God, there is no hope of eternal life. And so as we look at the scripture, we see Jesus as fully God. I want to unpack just a little bit of what that means for us this morning. First of all, because he's fully God, he has always existed. Because he's fully God, there's never a time that Jesus did not exist. John 1, verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. In Genesis 1, 1, what does it say? In the beginning, God created. God was there before creation. And Jesus was there in the beginning when God spoke creation into existence. And in fact, the New Testament will say Jesus was active in creating the world with the Father. John 8, 58, Jesus says, before Abraham was born, I am. Occasionally, my kids will ask me a question uh, kind of like this. They'll say, Daddy, were you alive back then? Right? And uh, back then is a period of time that stretches for roughly 250 years. Right? Uh, it could be the late 18th century or it could be 1992, right? So you kind of have to clarify when they say, were you around back then? What do they mean? The most common back then was during the period of Little House on the Prairie, right? Like, so uh, Charles and uh, Caroline Ingalls and Laura and her sisters, were you around back then? Daddy, back then, did you make your own butter, right? Things like that, uh, that they will ask me. And uh, I always have to explain, well, if if by back then, that's what you mean. Uh, No, I was not around back then. Okay, uh, I have a beginning. It goes back about 40 years. I was born at a particular point in time. Prior to that, I did not exist, right? So if by back then you mean 1992, sure, I was around at that time. If by back then you mean uh, like the Revolutionary War, no, I was not around in that back then, okay? When we look at Jesus, though, here's what we see. Jesus has no beginning, Uh, Any back then you can think of, whether it is 15 years ago or 15,000 years ago or 15 million years ago, Jesus was there. And so when Jesus proclaims who he is, he will say, before Abraham was, I am. As I sat in the mountains of Utah this week, I looked out the window of the place where we were staying and I could see the Wasatch Mountains, right out the window. And I thought, Jesus was there before these were made. And in fact, Scripture says that when God spoke into existence, the rivers and the mountains and the sun and the moon and the stars, there was Jesus. He was always there. And there was never a point in time when he was not God. There was never a moment when God looked over at Jesus and said, I like you. I'm going to make you a deity, right? Because he was always God. From eternity past into eternity future, he always existed. And the scripture is explicit 
on that point, right? Not only has he always existed, uh, but nobody made him, right? Nobody created Jesus. Jesus remains an uncreated being. In fact, Jesus is an active agent in creation. Again, as you look at uh, the scripture, Colossians chapter 2, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth. And apart from him, nothing was created that has, uh, uh, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, excuse me, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Right? Everything you see, Jesus made. Jesus was with the Father when it was created. And again, if you look at the faith system, particularly of the Jehovah's Witnesses, you can go to their website to this day and you will see the statement that Jesus is a created being. That is a heresy that goes all the way back to the early days of the church. It's called Arianism. Arius was a bishop in Alexandria, Egypt, who proposed that Jesus was made rather than God in the flesh, uncreated, the uncreated creator. And so the church would hone their understanding of Jesus to say, Jesus is eternal and Jesus is uncreated. Nobody made him. He made all that there is. And so the mystery of the incarnation, when you really think about it, is that when Jesus became a man, the one who created entered his creation. Right, we sing songs about Christmas, and I don't know if, if when you sing those songs and if you see the nativity, if it ever occurs to you that Mary, this young woman who gave birth to Jesus, gave birth to the one who made her. Right, and, and I've often thought about that mystery that Jesus is the creator of all of us, and yet he entered into his creation. And I've often wondered if when Jesus was told, for example, to clean his room... If he was tempted to say, Mom, come on, I made you, right? (laughs) But he never said it, of course, because he was sinless, which we'll talk about in a moment. But the one who made the universe entered into the universe he created. The one who had existed before time itself entered into time. In his song, Labor of Love, Andrew Peterson puts it this way, the baby in her womb, he was the maker of the moon. He was the author of the faith that can make the mountains move. The one who made all of creation stooped so low as to enter it for you and me. So when we say Jesus is God, we're saying he is eternal, he is uncreated, And he is also sinless, right? He never sinned. He is the only one in history who never disobeyed God, right? Hebrews 4, he has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Peter says in 1 Peter 2, he committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. I find that remarkable that Peter, who spent three years with Jesus, day in, and day out, would affirm he he never sinned. He he never had a heart of greed or lust 
or anger. He never lied. He never lied. Imagine that. Even if one of Jesus' half-sisters said to him, uh, does this tunic make me look fat? Jesus never lied, right? He never was tempted to get out of something by lying like we do. He told the truth at all times, in all ways, with grace and with love and with the authority of his Father because he is God in the flesh pre-existent, uncreated, and sinless. And so because Jesus is fully God, that is what drives us to worship him. We worship him now and we will worship him forever because in his resurrected body, he is glorified at the right hand of God the Father. Jesus is fully God. And again, it is central to the Christian faith to understand what that means. He is not a God. He is not partly God. He is fully God, equal to the Father in nature, in His essence, in His attributes. Fully God, but also fully human. As you look at the Scripture, uh, this again is the great mystery of the incarnation itself. Fully God, seated on his throne from before time began. And yet, as as we've heard from Philippians 2 a couple of times this morning, Paul says in Philippians that although he existed in the form of God, he didn't regard that equality with God a thing to be grasped, right? To be held on to. He didn't take his equality with God and say, I have to keep this, this privilege, And this right of sitting next to the throne of God. But it says he emptied himself and he took on the form of a servant. Paul is not saying that Jesus became any less God when he became a man. Instead, he is saying he took on the form of humanity and left his throne to join us here and be fully human. The one who made creation, as we've said, entered into. Uh, Some of you may have seen a movie that was released maybe 30 years ago called The Last Emperor. It's about the last emperor of China. And in fact, it won Academy Awards. And uh, the, the essence of the story uh, revolves around Emperor Puyi of China, who literally was the last emperor of China. He became the emperor when he was around two years old. He was chosen. And uh, in that day in China, if you were the emperor, you were viewed as a god in human form. People could not touch you. They had to address you as sire. And he says in his memoirs that from his earliest days, from the time he was a toddler, he was accustomed to being addressed as, yes, sire. And he said, if somebody didn't address me in that way, I wouldn't stand for it. And he said, I was accustomed from my earliest days to people hitting the dirt and kowtowing and kneeling before me wherever I went. But here's what happened to Puyi is that uh, the government was overtaken in China. And eventually, Puyi was forced to abdicate his throne, and he was kicked out of the forbidden city, the giant palace in Beijing, where he lived. He was placed in prison for a number of years. He was exiled to Japan for a number of years. And when he died, he was living back in Beijing as a gardener and an editor of a communist magazine in China. I've always thought what it must have felt like to go from being the emperor, a god, 
in human form to just a guy planting flowers. Right? And as, as I think about Puyi's story, I thought, you know, the, the interesting thing is it was involuntary for him. He didn't choose that. He was forced into it. And yet as we look at the Scripture, what we have is Jesus himself voluntarily left his throne to become a carpenter in Nazareth so we can see God and have a relationship with him. That's the beauty of what we call the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Philip Yancey, in his book, The Jesus I Never Knew, puts it this way, the God who created matter took shape within it as an artist who might become a spot on a painting or a playwright, a character within his own play. See, the humility of Jesus Christ is such that he did not cling to his privileges and rights but he took on humanity to die in our place and rise again in a physical body so that we can have life. Even after his resurrection, you remember in John chapter 20, when Thomas and the disciples see Jesus, he still has the scars. And for eternity, he bears the scars. In the book of Revelation, when John sees a vision of Jesus. He says, I saw one as of a lamb who was slain. He still recognizes on Jesus the marks of his crucifixion. Because although Jesus' body is resurrected and glorified, he's still a man for eternity forward because of what he did for us. As you look at Jesus' life and as you look at the Gospels, you see abundant evidence of Jesus' humanity. Let me just show you a few. John chapter 1, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word took on flesh. What does that mean? Well, a few things. One, Jesus had a body, and so He did things like drink water. John chapter 4, you see Jesus sitting by a well in Samaria. And when the Samaritan woman comes up, he says to her, give me some water to drink. Uh, Even on the cross, Jesus says, I am thirsty, right? And so uh, they gave him vinegar to drink on the cross out of cruelty. But Jesus in his physical body needed to drink just like you and me. He got thirsty on a hot day. Uh, He ate Matthew 4 and Luke 24. One of the fascinating things about Jesus as you read through the Gospels is he loved fish. Right? It's, it's interesting. As you read it, Jesus is always talking about fish, eating a fish, cooking a fish, making analogies about fish. It was his, his favorite. Right? I'm confident that if Jesus were here now, he would take us to seafood. Right? He loved fish. And so Jesus eats like you and I eat. He gets hungry like you and I get hungry. Matthew chapter 4 actually tells of the end of his time in the desert after 40 days fasting and praying, and it says he was hungry. And how did the devil try to tempt him? He said, turn that stone into bread. Right? And Jesus had to rely on strength from his father to say what? Man does not live by bread alone, 
but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. All right, so he was thirsty. He was hungry. Luke 24 is actually one of my other favorite passages in the gospel narratives because Jesus is resurrected and he's glorified and the disciples see him and they're astounded at his resurrection and they're not certain if it's him. And here's how Jesus proves it's him. He says, do you have any fish? And they say, sure. And so they give him a piece of broiled fish and he eats it in front of them. And they go, yep, that's Jesus. Because he eats and they know, yeah, our Savior loved to eat fish. And they recognize him. He ate, he drank, he napped, right? What's more human than taking a nap, right? Some of you are like, I'm going to go home and feel real human this afternoon. Matthew chapter 8. There's a storm on the Sea of Galilee, and the disciples are panicked. And what does Jesus do? He goes into the boat, and he's snoozing because he's tired. And they have to wake him up to get him to calm the storm. And it's a beautiful passage where we have this uh, juxtaposition of Jesus' humanity and his deity together because Jesus is fast asleep. And they wake him up and they go, don't you care that we're perishing? And Jesus stands up and he looks around at the storm and he goes, shh. And he gets perfectly calm and still. And he says to them, you have little faith. Why were you afraid? And they, again, they hit the deck. Who is this? That even the wind and the waves obey him. Right? And it doesn't tell us in the passage. I've always liked to imagine that Jesus went back to the corner of the boat and finished his nap. Right? And what a beautiful pairing of the deity and humanity of Christ. And that's the great mystery of the incarnation. And in fact, the gospel narratives never shy away from putting those two things right next to each other. Jesus eats and drinks and sleeps, and yet he is God in the flesh. He felt human emotions. John chapter 11, we saw this on Easter Sunday when we looked at the death and the resurrection of Lazarus by the word of Jesus. And Jesus, upon being confronted with his friend's death, what did he do? He cried. He felt human emotions. There's no emotion that you or I have that Jesus has not felt. Sadness, anger, even fear in the face of his crucifixion. He felt human emotions. He cried. He felt pain, and he died. John chapter 19, verses 33 to 34, is one of the grittiest portions of Scripture. When to make sure that Jesus was dead, the soldiers put a lance through his side, and out came blood and water. He was physically dead. He didn't pretend to be dead. He didn't pass out. They took his body They placed his physical body in a tomb and they rolled the stone over the mouth of the tomb. And for three terrible days, the disciples had to wrestle with the reality that their Savior was dead. Their Messiah had been killed. And then, of course, three days later, he burst out of the tomb. Not simply in spiritual form, but in a resurrected, glorified body that could still eat fish, that still bore the marks of the crucifixion. Fully God, fully human. 
Right, what we find throughout Scripture, I think, is that on an average day, if we had been around at the time and Jesus walked past us, we wouldn't have noticed anything particularly unusual about him. In fact, Isaiah chapter 53, predicting the coming of Christ, says he had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. Right, if we saw Jesus walk by on the street, he'd just look like a normal guy. But see, that's the mystery and the power of the incarnation of Christ. The preexistent, uncreated, sinless Son of God became a man. Died on a cross and rose again so we can have life. So that when we look at Jesus, we say he's unique in all of history. Nobody else is like him. No group can claim him. He's not a socialist, a celebrity, or a basketball player. He's the eternal Son of God, right? There's nobody else like Jesus. Only He is fully God and fully human. This was a doctrine in the early church that they referred to as hypostatic union. That is, the two natures united together in one person. If you have time and you want to engage in a little extra homework this afternoon, go read the definition of Chalcedon, C-H-A-L-C-E-D-O-N, the definition of Chalcedon, where the church wrestled and wrote down, who is Jesus? Fully divine, fully human, uncreated, preexistent. He's not two people. He's not some weird third thing, right? Fully God, and fully human, Son of God and Son of Man. All right, so as we look at the person of Jesus then, what does that imply for us? Right. First of all, because of who He is, He can offer us salvation. Because of who He is, He can offer us salvation. I, I want us to hear this morning the beauty of the gospel, that the one who sat in the throne room of God came to be a man. And here's why. Because he was chasing down sinful men and women destined for hell to save them. And if you don't know God through Jesus Christ this morning, the message of Jesus' life and death and resurrection is that the one who is God in the flesh became a man for you and me and died on a cross, the perfect sinless sacrifice, and rose again so you can have eternal life. That's what God did for you. That's how much He loves you and me. He can offer salvation. For those who know Jesus this morning, not only can He offer salvation, He understands our weaknesses. There is no struggle in your life that Jesus doesn't know. He knows physical pain. He knows the abandonment of his friends. He knows loneliness. He knows uncertainty. He knows anger. He knows sadness. He knows everything you have felt, every struggle. He understands. And the author of Hebrews will tell us because he understands, he helps us in our struggles. And here's how. Because he is God in the flesh and he died and he rose again, he now sits again at the right hand of God in heaven where God has exalted him to the highest place. And you know what he does while he's there? He talks to God about you. 
He talks to God about you and me. He intercedes on our behalf and helps us in our weaknesses. That's why the author of Hebrews will say this, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's who Jesus is. He's the one who stands at God's right hand. And when we approach his throne, he turns to the Father and he says, my child needs you. My child needs help. He understands our weaknesses. He understands our struggles. And then through the power of the Spirit he sent, provides help to his people. Strength to bear up under trial and the power to trust in him. And so as we think about Jesus this morning, two things. We worship him and we draw close to him. We worship him because he is God and we draw close to him because he's our friend. And he understands what we need because nobody else in history has passed through the trials and the pain of humanity and through death itself and emerged victorious. And so we bow down before him and we proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then we turn to him in our time of need and trust him to meet all of our needs. The one who made the world entered into it so we could have life. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful this morning for the beauty of your Son, We worship him because before time began, he was with you in the beginning, creating all that there is so we can see your glory in creation and in him. We praise you that he is perfect, he is sinless, he is loving, he is powerful, he is fully God. And we praise you that he became a man for us. Father, I pray that we would not hesitate to approach the throne of grace to find mercy in our time of need, knowing that your Son loves us, knowing that he knows each of us and our struggles and our sin and our weakness, and that he intercedes on our behalf. Father, we're grateful for this time, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.